This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show. The award-winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever-changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris. Hi, thank you for joining us. My name is Bruce Norris, and with us today is David Kittle. David is CEO of Cypress Mortgage Capital, a correspondent lending company based in the USVI, US, U.S. Virgin Islands. He began his mortgage banking career in 1978 with American Fletcher Mortgage Company. Kittle moved to the management side in 1986 with Colwell Financial in 1994. He co-founded Associates Mortgage Group, Inc., the first of his three lending companies, selling AMG in 2006 as president and CEO. Kittle is past president of both the Louisville and Kentucky Mortgage Bankers Association. He chaired MBA's Political Action Committee 2004 to 2006. Morpac and served the industry as chairman of the MBA in Washington, D.C. in 2009. Talk about good timing. Uh, <laughs> David testified before Congress 14 times leading the industry during its most uh, tumultuous period and probably had a great deal of impact on maybe what didn't happen. <laughs> um, Kittle is co-founder and partner of the Mortgage Collaborative, the industry's premier mortgage cooperative, serving as its president and board vice chairman from 2013 to 2020. He's earned his CMA designation in 2004. Mr. Kittle has four children and lives in both St. Croix uh, U.S. Virgin Islands and Louisville, Kentucky, and in a pre-conversation, he can't wait get to, to get back to Kentucky. So, <laughs> exactly David, right. welcome, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you, Bruce. I'm glad to be back. You know, as a kind of a historian of cycles, I look at your career, and you have a tendency to be pretty, pretty great with timing, in the sense that in '78 there was sort of a in the next two years, there was, a, there was a change in the marketplace where interest rates went crazy. And if you were in the lending industry at that time, I'm, I'm just curious, what, what did that feel like? Because I remember as a borrower, I became an investor in 1981, and I had to refinance my house at 17 and a half. And that was a fixed loan. And then I got to refi it a couple years later at 12. But those were completely unprecedented times. So how did you manage to survive during that, that cycle? That's a great question, Bruce. Um, you know, just getting into the business back in the 70s, we didn't know any better. <laughs> That's what we had to deal with. And you're on straight commission. Um, it's when FHA at the time was really all we had, FHA and VA. There really wasn't a conventional Fannie Freddie market back then. And um, they came out with... Uh, believe it or not, something they had the FHA 235, FHA 245 program, which was a government subsidy. And the government actually, uh, depending on your income qualification, made half your house payment for you. They tied a second mortgage to your house and then you had to pay it back when you sold it. Wow. Yeah, through, uh, and, you know, through paying it back or the equity and the appreciation. So we did have some help, but, you know, FHA went all the way to 18 and a half percent. And uh, if I could finish on this thought, that was also back when uh, the government set the interest rate. The market didn't set it. So you wow. had to wait for the change to happen. And that happened with discount points. So I remember closing a loan in 1981 at 14 and a half percent interest. And this is the truth with 14 <laughs> discount points. 
and the seller had to pay the points. Uh, wow. Just to sell the house. So it was wow. different times. Way I was, well, and especially since you were coming off a couple of things, you know, in the seventies, you had increasing interest rates somewhat, but it was still reasonable. And for whatever reason, housing prices, I remember about 1974, 75, California and the United States was on par at something around 35 grand. Mm, and right. then off to the races and California went up about twice as fast and interest rates gradually rose. But we had a very interesting, you know, in 1980, 81, foreclosures went up about a thousand percent and you had interest rates that were terrible and you had high unemployment. And the odd thing about prices is they didn't go down. And part of the reasoning for that was about 50 or 60% of the transactions were allowed to happen because there was existing financing that could be taken over. Yeah, assumption. Yeah, well, and it was called a simple assumption. As I recall, you wrote a $45 check, sent in your name and address and say, put my name in the place of the other person's. I, I wish that policy still existed. Yeah, it would be great, but you're exactly right. You just had to, you know, if you were assuming a VA loan, you didn't, have, you just assumed that you had to replace uh, your entitlement uh, for the veteran who was selling the house. But yeah, yeah you had simple assumptions back then. That's exactly right. That was near and dear to my heart because that's how I got to buy my first house in about 74. I took over a guy's $203 payment and just happened to be a lucky timing with the price went up. And I, when I sold it, I got to make 10 grand. It was the first time my name was attached to a 10 grand check. <laughs> <laughs> and it would have never happened. But think about this. My first house, I bought FHA. But if you remember the FHA 245 program, it was a negam program. So the interest rate was actually 14.5%. And it started out at an effective rate that you could qualify at at that time of about 9%, and then it graduated 7.5% a year. So you had NEGAM for the first, I don't know, four or five years. And being on straight commission, I qualified, but it was the only way I could qualify for the loan back then. On a negative amortization loan. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> today even knows what that is. <laughs> now, I'm just curious, what was your, what was your feeling about owning the home, a home for the first time? Oh, to me, it was, it was a big deal to me. I, I just big, wondered, it was a big deal? such a big deal to get out of an apartment and have a home and have a yard. And, um, you know, I enjoy working in the yard, still do. And yeah. uh, it was everything. It was what it was instilled in me by my parents. Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting um, kind of having a lot of conflict with uh, haves and have nots or this side or that side. And I think housing could play a role. I, and I, I know it's not going to be, maybe it's, it's hard to explain that this could be a non-damaging program, but we're talking about giving $15,000 tax credits. I just wonder why we don't have a nothing down loan program. You know, kind of attach it to a qualifying process like the VA loan, but have one national foreclosure policy because at least, at least this is just my opinion. When you have price damage, you usually have tons of foreclosures that go back to the lender that get discounted heavily inside the marketplace and it affects, it affects all of the comps. So why not have a loan program that has a national foreclosure process? If you don't pay in six months, the opening bid is the late payments. It gets bought by somebody else that takes over the loan. Simple assumption, never becomes an REO. And you maybe you maybe you raise the percentage of people that own houses by 5%. What, what's your thoughts on that? Um, so may I answer that with just a quick story? Sure. 
So during the meltdown year when I was chairman of NBA 0809, uh, testifying in November, I remember it vividly, November the 19th, 2008, Senate Judiciary Committee having a heated discussion with Senator Dick Durbin, who was uh, leading that day. And uh, he was uh, screaming at me, I have this on tape, uh, about, you know, would you make 100% loans? Because back then we were making 100% conventional loans, you know, arms and everything else. And uh, I said, absolutely, Senator. And I said, they're called VA loans. And I mm -hmm. said, they're the best performing loans in the portfolio. And I said, are you telling me, Senator, that you want to get rid of the VA home loan program? He wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> and, he met uh, somebody more prepared than himself. <laughs> yeah, it was. You know, MBA does a good job preparing you, but I kind of knew about it anyway. But my point is, uh, of all the problems FHA has had, and I... To answer your question simply, yes, let's do a 100% program, but let's add one thing to the FHA program that VA has that makes it so good. And that's it. After you meet all your ratios, your income and everything, they have one thing, residual income, money left over after everything every month to qualify right. for a 100% VA loan. And they perform. So if it's good enough for the veterans, and it should be, they should get that, then yes. let's try that program for FHA to your point, it should work. But it's got to be underwritten properly. Correct. But do you think, I think what I'm trying to get at too is that I think that changes the, somebody's attitude toward their shot in America. I, it felt that way to me, man. I well, felt. Can I, I add one more thing to that? You know, the, yeah. thing, the student loan debt, right? They're screaming about g giving that back. I don't think we should give, uh, give away student loan debt and pay that back. I don't think we should do that at all. I think if you took it out, you have to pay it back. But if on this, if they're having problem because of student loan debt to qualify for a loan, then let, or they don't have the down payment, then give them this 100% loan to your point with residual income, let them get in there and uh, start building some equity. That's the way to do it. I agree. I don't like, I don't like saying, okay, well, you guys don't have to pay back something. I think it's a bad lesson to teach. Horrible and yeah, and what do you do with the people that work two jobs and paid off theirs? Do you get did they get a check back? I mean, it's just it seems like it's fraught with problems, especially the one that we just taught you. Wow, you know, you don't have to pay what you said you would pay. I think that's a bad lesson to learn. Very bad lesson. Um. So when you went into these these companies in 1994, that was almost perfect timing again because about. And within two years, most of the bad stuff was over. And then the country went on a 10-year housing boom. Right. And during that cycle, um, lending policies got very interesting. And, <laughs> and I, didn't, uh, I didn't understand a lot of it, to be honest with you. I'm, I pay attention to statistics. And I thought we peaked out in price that I could accept in the first quarter of 05. And then... Um, there was a price, uh, I mean, it was really aggressively still going up and I was confused. And so I actually had a seminar. We had several hundred people in the audience and I asked a, a lender that we had brought up to the front. I, it was a very brief interview because I basically started with this question. Um, stated income loans, where does the stated income number come from? And without batting an eye in front of hundreds of people, she said, oh, we just make it up. Exactly. And there was, yeah, there was that moment of pause where I went, Okay, I get it. <laughs> I get how we got to this price, but now the problem is we're going to have a problem. You know, that's going yeah. to be given back some point. Truly the liar loan. Yeah, but it <laughs> wasn't. 
See, that's what happens when you get used to something. When she said that in front of hundreds of people, basically saying, yeah, we commit fraud on every loan. And it wasn't a problem because it was the norm. That's, that's the danger of changing the norm. It became the norm. None of them were really held accountable. And uh, sorry about that. <laughs> and, uh, sorry, didn't mean that to come in there. Oh, that's uh, okay. So it, uh, it's, it's just really, really uh, a problem. It was the liar loan back then. And nobody was held accountable during those times, Bruce, at all. Or after, correct? Or, or after, you know, they, they held the industry. They went after, it's like, if you really want to get down to the weeds, you know, Bank of America was forced to buy Countrywide, and then they went after them seven or eight times for hundreds of millions of dollars on bad loans they forced them to take over. Um, the borrower was never held accountable. And the realtor or the mortgage banker the individual person on that liar loan that encouraged them to do that and lie was never held accountable. We had, um, we had an interesting transaction. I was selling my last property that I had at the time in California and I was doing an exchange and I was gonna borrow one loan for half of the value of the property. And um, I, I had filled out the application and there was quite a delay. And finally my exchange timetable got kind of close. And the lady says, you know, we have to get this thing done so I put some pressure on the lender. So I finally got loan docs back and I was looking at it. And it was connected to a loan. Whoop. I'm sorry. Can you hear? Okay. Yeah, Can, it was connected to a, a loan application that was completely different than the one I submitted. Oh my gosh. And I said, um, so I called her up. I said, um, uh, I can't sign this because it's all different than my, it's not, it's not my stuff. She said, yeah. Yours is really confusing. You have corporations and properties. So I just simplified it. We do this for all our clients. Oh <laughs> yeah. Oh. And I said, uh, you know what? I, I think that's called lender fraud. I'm going to pass. And she was so offended that I used that word because, again, it had become the norm. And when it becomes the norm, it becomes acceptable somehow. So now what's very interesting, because you paid the big price for the industry sitting in front of Congress who conveniently forgot that some of their policies put us in this in the seat. And I always get entertained by, okay, Dodd Frank bill has Barney Frank's part in it. And, yeah, and, that, and Chris Dodd. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, I know Barney Frank was, I mean, he was promoting home ownership and had right up to home ownership, promoting the uh, zero down. He was pr promoting the option arms. Uh, all the way back to actually, in my opinion, it started with CRA lending. You know, when, in, when you tell a market or a company or a bank or a group of mortgage people that they have to go lend in a certain area, regardless of whether or not they're good. Yeah. That's yeah. what started it. Yeah. And so that market's going to go there. And it did. Okay. David, before we get too far, I, I have a question. Now, you, you mentioned that even the, the borrower you know, didn't have to, you know, they, they were never held responsible. Now, do you mean from a, like a fining uh, or, uh, or jail or anything like that? Because um, losing a house is, is accountability, isn't it? Well, it is, but I mean it from both sides and here's why. All right. They lost that house, but the investor lost a lot of money on that house. They knew when they were putting down on their application, if they were a gardener making 1500 a month, that they really weren't a nursery owner making $15,000 a month. 
So they were maybe coerced by the realtor or the mortgage company, but they also signed the docs. And so they should have been held accountable for it because somebody had to pay that loan. Some investor got it. And, you know, in 08 and 09, the thing that I fought most while I was chairman was something called bankruptcy cram down. And to your point and to your question, what Congress wanted to come back and do is say, okay, in this security, in this strip, in this tranche, uh, we'll just take that $200,000 loan and make it 175 and we'll lower the interest rate from six to four and three quarters. And let's just do that so we can keep people in their houses, even though they lied on their loan application to begin with. Well, who got hurt on that? Now, it didn't go through because we defeated it, but who would have gotten hurt on that? The investor in the mortgage. Okay. Yeah. And they, they just arbitrarily picked winners and losers, you know? To heck with the guy that invested in the mortgage. We're just going to lower your rate and we're going to lower your principal and take it away from you. And that was totally wrong. And we fought it and we won. Well, you know, that had to be the most difficult seat to sit in. Um, I'm trying to think of a interview that I did. There was, uh, I wish I, I, I didn't think about bringing this up, but there was um, some, a gentleman that was in charge of how mortgages were not funded, uh, you know what, I'll probably have to recycle, it'll, it'll come to my mind. He, he sat in front of Congress and, uh, and got grilled. And he had submitted something in writing to them. And we interviewed the gentleman uh, a couple of days after he had done that. Because they were, there was sort of like a new system on how you proved ownership of a loan. And I, again, I forget what I'm trying to get to. But I interviewed him after reading what he submitted to Congress and it was obvious to me that no one in Congress read, his, read what he gave them. Well, they don't read it. No, that, I don't even know if they could comprehend it. And so that's, that was your job is, first of all, naturally, you're the bad guy because you're connected to the industry. But if, if you hadn't got in the way of that, what, what do you think some of the results would have been? What would, what would have been worse to the, it would have been a worse collapse. It would have been much, much longer before anybody would have, uh, as an investor, had the confidence to come back in and invest in mortgage-backed securities. It would have killed the MBS market totally. I mean, who's going to go put their money up when Congress can walk in and reduce your principal and the return on your investment? And that's exactly what bankruptcy crammed down was. They wanted to take care of the borrower without ever holding the borrower accountable or holding themselves accountable to your earlier point through their own policies that help create that. Right. And uh, they just do it blanket. That's how they do it. Instead of waiting and taking the patience to make sure that each one of those loans, maybe somebody did get totally screwed on the loan, that borrower deserved what they wanted, what they were promoting. Okay. What about the ones who didn't? Well, we don't have time to go through it that way. Take the time to do it. Mm -hmm. Do it right. Mortgage-backed securities got invented when? And why were, they, why were they necessary or a good invention? Well, they were a good invention because it brought liquidity to the marketplace. I can't give you the exact date when it was, but it, you know, the secondary market, mortgage-backed securities, it, it was a way to sell and regenerate cash instead of just going to your savings and loan and making shelf products, right? Because they only had so many loans and you have to keep your ratios of uh, deposits to loans to your risk, right? And uh, mediate your risk. So it, it brought liquidity, uh, I would say in the late seventies, sometime mid seventies uh, to the mortgage market and allowed the mortgage market, the home market to explode. And it brought 
brought the home market to, to where it is today. Okay. What, what went wrong with the, with the leverage portion of it, say in 2005 you know, and six, where we ended up having that day you go, oh, this is, this is dangerous. Well, uh, you go back, you know, and I, my politics certainly leaned to the right, but this is when George W. Bush was president. And, you know, they want to set, Fannie Mae wants to set a home ownership rate, or the government does. And again, back to my earlier comment, when you tell a market that it has to achieve a certain percentage, then it's going to get there by hook or by crook, and it ended up being by crook. And they wanted a 60 plus 5% or whatever it was, home ownership percent rate. And if everybody deserves, you know, I've got a great friend who's a former chairman of MBA before me, Mike Petrie, and Mike's um, was on the multifamily side. And, you know, that's for rent and that's okay. Um, everybody deserves a roof over their head, but not everybody deserves to be a homeowner. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be. And we tried to make everybody a homeowner. And the multifamily side of our business spoke up about it. And uh, they were right at the time. That's going to do it for our interview with David Kittle this week. Please be sure to catch part two next week. Thank you. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com. The Norris Group originates and services loans in California and Florida under California DRE License 01219911, Florida Mortgage Lender License 1577, and NMLS License 1623669. For more information on hard money lending, go to thenorrisgroup.com and click the hard money tab.